This is a CNA podcast. So, John, in a few words, can you give us your thoughts on the following? China's economic outlook in 2023. Highest growth economy in emerging market. Chinese equities. Good diversifications and long-term investments. Sectors to watch. Consumer reopening play and the green economy. Growth stocks. Just one part of your portfolio, but not the only part of your Welcome to Money Talks. I'm Sarah Alcaldi. When China finally relaxed its zero-COVID restrictions and reopened its borders, it's not an understatement to say that investors let out a sigh of relief. After all, this is Asia's largest economy saying it's ready to do business again. After a terrible year for stocks in 2022, will China be the much-needed spark to lift markets around the world? even against the backdrop of a looming recession? And should investors plunge back in or adopt a more cautious approach towards China? There's so much to unpack, and to help me break it down, I have with me John Lin. John is the China Portfolio Manager at global asset management firm Alliance Bernstein. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us on Money Talks. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, finally, China has reopened after three long years, and I can't imagine how it's been for many of them facing these strict restrictions with COVID for three years. And what was your reaction when they finally opened their doors, opened their borders? And what do you think the investor community felt about this? Firstly, it's just on my human level. It's good to have some of these restrictions lifted. My colleagues and, and people I work with a long time, I call friends now. So to see their ability to go out and dine now and travel again, I think that's all good. It's great. It's really lifted the mood. It's lifted the morale, I think, for a lot of folks inside China. Uh, from the investor community point of view, it's also really good news. All of this lockdown meant that the economy was really quite disrupted too. And it really was pretty straightforward. If you have a, a policy in place that did not let people go out, then it did not let people go to the office or did not uh, let people dine out or travel, etc. You're essentially barring people from engaging in economic activities. If you don't have economic activities, then you ended up having recessions or slow GDP growth. And now that that's all reversed, some of those activities or a lot of those activities will come back. I, I would argue some of those come back a lot stronger because we all heard the term revenge spending, right? And so uh, if you couldn't dine out for six months and uh, all of a sudden you can, you tend not just to go out to dine, but you dine out well. You treat yourself to a really nice meal. Or if you fly somewhere, you know what, I'm going to buy a business class ticket this time. I'm going to treat myself well. So I think we not only expect that activities come back, we expect them to come back with a vengeance in some, some parts of the economy. And many people see this reopening from China as the good news in a time where there's just so much bad news all around the world. We still have that war in Ukraine, you know, 
countries are expecting recessions and there's still high inflation. But hey, at least China is opening and at least China is loosening these restrictions. But do you think this optimism from many people, many investors and the business community, do you think it's misplaced? I don't think so. I do think that China will behave differently in 2023 as an economy versus a lot of these global economies, as you mentioned. The key word in 2022 in terms of the two big drivers in the world, one is probably rates and actions, interest rate rate rising in developed markets. The second one is definitely China's COVID zero. And coming into this year, it looks like those are still the two things driving. I think the debate in places like the U.S. is about how fast the Fed will or will not raise interest rate this year because of what's happening with inflationary trends. And another one is squarely China's reopening. And so in that context, I think Chinese economy will do better than a lot of the peers this year simply because they've done so badly in the last couple of years, relatively speaking. Now, from an investor point of view, Chinese assets or Chinese economic trajectories really has been behaving differently than the rest of the world for a long time. You know, whether you want to look at years like 2018, where China was affected by trade war, or if you want to look at the years like 2022, or even a decade before, um, there's a, a many instances where the Chinese economy and therefore the Chinese market just trends in a different trajectory. When the West was down, China was up. When uh, the West was up, China was down. And I think therein lies attractiveness of Chinese investments, right? Because from an investment point of view, you want to have diversifications. And the benefit of diversifications comes in assets that behave differently. So you're always balanced. So you have different ways of making money over time. And then in 2023, China is again behaving more true to its uh, this diversification principle is behaving differently once again. Can you talk to us more about that, about how China behaves differently from many parts of the world? Why is that? Is that something that we can rely on for the next, say, years or, or decades? Yeah, those are really interesting sort of points to dig into. I think that they are principally two drivers for this difference in behavior. One is probably just the way the economy functions, and second is the way the market functions. So let's spend some time on each. Right? On the economy side, China is you know, the world's second largest economy, and it's made up of a set of companies that are largely domestically based companies. Certainly, the ones that are listed on the stock exchange are mostly uh, domestic-oriented companies. And the Chinese economy has this pattern of, you know, when it gets really hot, the authorities come in and they try to introduce measures, try to cool it down. And when that cool down happens or works too well, and the economy is cooling too much, then the authorities come in and start to stimulate that. And so you can see how the synchronization with the West, right, when the global economy is all reflating at the same time, China tends to be a little bit the other direction because authority might be starting to pull down. They might start to raise rates earlier. They might start to pull liquidity from the market earlier. And then when the world is cooling down, China might actually try to stimulate the other way around. And so this uh, difference in economic cycle or just the rhythm 
of policy making, I think is a very important source of that difference in behavior in economic activities overall. Now, if you look at the second part of this is the market, particularly the world's second largest equity market is the domestic Asia market. You know, the, the stocks are listed in Shanghai, the stocks are listed in Shenzhen, and stock market is 95 plus percent domestic Chinese money. So the foreigners' participation has increased a lot, doubled, quadrupled over the last several years, but still only single digit. And therefore, what's driving that market is squarely Chinese money, Chinese capital. And Chinese capital, for better or for worse, really isn't synchronized or linked to the rest of the world at the moment. And so the Chinese liquidity, you know, if the authorities are loosening, that also ingests liquidity to the overall economy. Some of that might find its way into risk assets, whether it's the property market or the stock market. And so the sentiment in the Asian market might also fluctuate in a different pattern as it does in the global economy overall. So I think those are the interesting drivers that are essentially providing that diversification benefits for a global investor when it comes to allocations. Hello, my name is Steve Lai. And I'm Teresa Tang. And we are the hosts of CNA Correspondent. A podcast that takes you to the heart of the work our correspondents do across the globe. From China's COVID response. To the child care center massacre in Thailand. From the fall of Najib Razak. To the rise of Anwar Ibrahim as Malaysia's prime minister. We speak to the people at the reporting front lines. So if you want to know how the biggest global stories unfold. Make sure you follow or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. One concern, though, about China is that market forces are not the only ones that are at play. We've seen the government take a heavier hand and intervene in the name of building a more equitable society. We've seen that in the crackdown in tech, private education, as well as property. But for many investors, especially those who are not professional or or new investors, they may see that as a very unpredictable place to invest in, especially if you're trying to prepare for your retirement, which is decades away. So how do you think people like myself, how do you think we should prepare for such situations when the government steps in in an area that you didn't see coming? Sure, Sarah. First of all, having done this for a long time, investing in the Chinese equity market, I would say that you and us and everyone else should think of Chinese equity as always, always subject to government regulations or or interference. It is my view that they are zero companies that are completely independent or shielded from or immune from government actions in China. But the market forgets that from time to time. If you look at years like 2019, 2020, it's a period where a set of companies, Chinese internet companies, for example, listed in New York or Hong Kong, um, have grown in a way that hasn't seen a lot of government interference. And so I think you have a set of global investors coming and go, well, here's a set of companies that I can buy. That seems to be riding this Chinese middle-class growth and consumption wave. And that seems to be immune from government interference. And therefore, it deserves a very high valuation. And so they come in and then they put very high stock price multiple on top of these stocks. You know, at that point, we would obviously disagree because our principle, our framework has always been that 
no company, no company is immune from government interference. And so we would think that the way that investors think about those companies were wrong. But, you know, fast forward to today, a lot of those regulatory actions took place and the multiples come down, a lot of money left China. Therefore, a lot of those companies that have uh, traded very richly two or three years ago are now trading very attractively and we think there are opportunities. I think the principle here, therefore, is that government regulation is always an element of the market. As long as it's commonly understood by everyone else in the market, then they make potentially good investments. You have to go down to individual companies and look at their cash flow, their management, their strategy. But to us, government regulations or the presence of that by itself isn't a barrier to making money in China. Because they've always been there. They've always been there for the last 20 years. And we all know a lot of people were able to make a lot of money in those markets. But let me add one more tidbit, which is, look, this is a huge market. China is very large. 3,000, 4,000 listed companies, depending on your definition of liquidity cutoff. And you can always find opportunities in various parts of the market. Take uh, your reference to some of those crackdown actions in 2021, for example. Uh, part of those uh, was, for example, the crackdown on the education industry. So the government basically came out, in, I think, in the middle of 2021 and said, we no longer allow tutoring or after-school tutoring services to be provided. But then in an economy as large as China, for every action, there is a reaction somewhere else. And sometimes that reaction is unanticipated, and you can actually make your profits on that. For example... We found some of these textbook publishing companies in China are actually very good investments, and they actually were helped by the government's crackdown on the tourist services. Why is that the case? Well, just because the government say no more tutoring services, it doesn't mean that the students no longer have to take their college entrance exams, the Gaokao, right? And so if you're a parent and you have a child that's about to go into an entrance exam, but you can't do tutoring service mm-hmm. anymore. What do you do? You probably go out, you buy more books, right. more textbooks, more practice books. And so some of these publishing companies that print those books ended up making extra money. And so they actually make very good investments. Uh, they are sort of the unintended beneficiaries of some of government's actions. Yeah. And it really boils down, I guess, to understanding the people in China, because as you said, a lot of these stocks are supported by Chinese money. A lot of these businesses are very domestic. And so understanding the nature of the people and understanding how they operate, what they value, then you can kind of follow the money, if you will. But, you know, John, what's interesting is that before COVID and before all these crackdowns, China was seen as a great place to invest because of the development that it was going through, right? In some ways, it was kind of like the Singapore story. They went from third world to first emerging to developed. And so there's a lot of development that happened in China and a lot of companies grew massively because of that. But now that a lot of development has already been made in the country, is there still room for big growth up ahead? Absolutely, Sarah. We really think that the opportunities remain in the market. But you have to find it. Right? The way to finding these ways to make money or the way to find these equity investment opportunities might look different than how it used to be in the mid-2000s, 10, 15 years ago. 
I like your reference to, to Singapore, right, to the dragon or Asian dragon economies, right? whether it's um, Hong Kong or whether it's really Korea and Taiwan. Let's take Korea and Taiwan, for example. They were the go-go economies in the 90s. And a little bit like China in the 2000s, you can almost close your eyes and buy a bunch of stuff and they just go up. When the economy is growing at 10 15%, it's very hard not to make money. Yeah. You have to work really hard to lose money in those, <laughs> in those markets. Yeah. Um, but Korea and Taiwan, into the 2000s, slowed themselves because their economy also matured. They grew really fast. They got bigger. Mm -hmm. And so the law of large number means that the growth was slower. And on top of that, I think both economies saw political administrations coming in that began to think about things like wealth gap, think about social services. And so the policies in those economies also started to change to start to to care more about the bottom part of their citizens, to evolve into taxations, the rich and the corporates in order to provide social safety nets, etc. I think that's happening in China too, in terms of that the economy itself is also much, much larger than, than they were certainly in the turn of the century when China was just entering into the WTO World Trade Organization. After 20 years of growth, China is very large now. The growth has to slow. And with the current government, it's also very clear that several goals are being implemented in terms of thinking about the type of growth that uh, the political leaders want to see. They want to see more equitable growth in China. And so the way to make money in China might look like the way to make money in places like Korea and Taiwan since the turn of the century. What I'm trying to say is, even though the economy has slowed in places like Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, you can still very much make money. The way to make money is different. It's no longer about just growth. One had to think about maybe things like the fundamentals of the company's more. Find good companies with good cash flows, with good management. Maybe you don't overpay for the company. Maybe you're looking for dividends to come back to you. And so if you apply to China, that probably means the, the old ways of uh, making money in China or Chinese equity, which is you close your eyes and you buy growth stocks, that ought to be complemented by other ways of making money going forward. You know, find some of these more well-valued, slower growth, but more stable type of companies. Yeah, and do your homework is really key here when you're investing in China. John, are there certain sectors or certain trends that you are really excited about when it comes to China and that, you know, we should keep in mind? Well, in the short term, as China reopened, it's all about the Chinese consumer. And so whether it, people travel more, they go and dine more, this sort of consumer mobility related part of the market, we think that you can find the most opportunity during this reopening process, right? Hotel companies, beverage makers, restaurants, travel agencies. But then as China's reopening sort of normalizes, the you know, economy goes back to sort of trend growth. What well, I think we're going to see is growth reverting to slower a type of speed, and the opportunities themselves will also change. In particular, I think investors ought to pay attention to industries that are in sync with what government or what the political leaders in China want to do. The resource independence is one policy, and another one is policy to address the, the wealth gap. Let's take the first one, for example, 
resource independence. If China were to generate more of its own energy inside its own borders using solar, using wind, that means they had to import that much less oil. Some of these companies in the green energy industry, whether it's equipment makers or solar and wind farm operators, etc., could be quite interesting uh, for the long term. And John, before we let you go, I'd like to get your final advice for people who are thinking of dipping their toes into the Chinese market and investing in Chinese stocks. I would like to argue or suggest that investors stick the long term. You know, Chinese stocks uh, could be volatile in the shorter term. And as you mentioned, they could be subject to both policy interference from the government itself. They could be subject to the ebb and flow of geopolitical tensions on the international stage. But ultimately, as equity investors, what are we buying? We're buying the growth of companies overall. So what you want to do is you want to find a good set of companies for the long term. And you want to make sure you have the ability to write out some of these shorter term volatilities. Because over the long term, we believe Chinese companies won't be able to deliver that earnings growth and never return to investors over time. And then secondly, is make sure you are diversified and balanced. China should be a part of uh, allocation, just like there are going to be sources of return elsewhere, whether it's in equity in other markets or other asset classes. And even within China, you want to make sure that uh, you're not just geared towards one single way of making money, right? Just hyper-growth stocks, for example. You, you, there ought to be balances in terms of thinking about the cash flow stocks, the dividend stocks. They all make together, I think, a good basket as a way to tap into that longer-term growth in Chinese equity market. Thank you so much, John, for breaking the China market down for us and for giving us great tips when it comes to investing in China. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's not a cliche to say when China sneezes, everyone catches a cold. What happens to this behemoth both on the economic and political fronts will affect the global markets. And the pandemic has shown the world that China will do business firmly on its own terms And that can mean the days of exuberant growth may well be behind us. But for big and small investors, opportunities remain for those willing to look beyond the short term. And as with all investments, do your homework, keep updated with the news, and only put money on things you feel comfortable with, having understood the risks. Well, thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed Money Talks, do follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, do rate us or leave us a review. And if you have a topic you're interested to hear about or have feedback, write to us at cnapodcasts at mediacorp.com.sg. The team behind Money Talks is Joanne Chan, Jacqueline Chan, Sai Nguyen, and Christina Robert. I'm Sarah Caldwell.